Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to give you a little sneak preview of my new book. I'm going to read you a chapter. I hope you like it. Chapter one, nobody joins a cult. Quote, Most of us don't know it's a cult until we either leave or have a moment where our metaphorical shelf, where we've been placing things we disagree with or are confused by, breaks. Jen, born into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Utah, US. As someone who is not religious at all, it can be tempting to think that I'd never end up in a cult. Easy to fall into thinking, I don't buy into things that aren't proven by science. I'm sceptical, rational and discerning. Well, firstly, many of those impacted by cults never chose to be there in the first place, because they were born in. And secondly, none of those things is a surefire defence against falling prey to a cult. The received wisdom on those who join cults is that they're vulnerable and naive types, and perhaps not all that intelligent. In my experience, The only thing that people who join a cult seem to have in common is that they were at a turning point in their lives when they joined. A turning point can be anything from a divorce to a significant loss or moving out of home. This is why university students are often targeted for recruitment. They're undergoing a huge life shift and at a stage of life where they're contemplating their future. Every single one of us experiences these turning points. We're just lucky if we don't come across the wrong mentor at the wrong moment. Psychotherapist Shelley Rosen writes of those who stay in cults as having difficulty reading the cues indicating that they are being deceived and manipulated. This lack of skill in discerning lying and manipulation is prevalent in our culture. Being raised to trust people and be generally optimistic often facilitates positive outcomes in life. But Rosen says there's a kind of blind spot that comes with this, whereby many of us believe that others think just like us. Without training in how to discern deception, many of us will believe the words of con artists and manipulators. I learned this the hard way recently. Anyone in Australia is likely to recognise the name Melissa Caddick. If you don't, she's been referred to by the press as the con artist of the century. Melissa swindled investors, who were mostly friends and family, out of tens of millions of dollars, which instead of investing, she spent on a lavish lifestyle. I was one of Melissa's victims. Melissa had been in my life for around eight years when I handed over my life savings to her. She was the cousin of my long-term partner, Joe, and I first met her early on in our relationship, at the wake of Joe's beloved grandfather. 
Like the rest of Joe's family, Melissa was small. She had dark hair that she wore pulled back tightly off her face, and big, dark eyes that darted around the broom, taking everything in. She had a habit of running her tongue over her perfect teeth. When I mentioned this to Joe, he said he'd never noticed. Her makeup was always flawless, and her jewellery looked expensive. But I wouldn't know a diamond from a diamante. Joe and I would have dinner with Melissa a couple of times a year, often at really nice restaurants we'd suggest, thinking Melissa would appreciate them. Joe and I both work in the arts and live fairly frugal lives, but we like to splurge every so often on a nice meal. We would split the bill with Melissa every time, and in hindsight, perhaps it should have struck us as odd that Joe's older, much wealthier cousin never tried to treat us, as our other relatives often do. We would talk about all kinds of things. It seemed strange to me how progressive she was when we spoke about social justice issues or politics. Many of her lifestyle choices didn't seem to align with this. But how much worse for the environment is a private jet anyway? Maybe she was making lots of charity donations. How would I know? Melissa gave the appearance of being hugely successful. Her house was full of art and had beautiful views of Sydney Harbour. She spent every New Year's skiing in Aspen. She was the type of person I probably would never have met had she not been related to Joe. I was never looking for clues to any kind of deception. I also felt that my ignorance around financial matters meant I probably wouldn't understand her work in any case, so I never asked too many questions about it. Melissa told us she'd done well through a previous business and was now able to pick and choose her clients so she only worked with a select few. She never, ever told us that we should be investing with her. In that sense, I like to believe our relationship was real, to the extent that genuine relationships were possible for her. When Joe received a sum of money after his wonderful grandmother passed away, he thought the most sensible thing to do with it would be to have Melissa invest it for him. His parents thought he should buy a new car. When he started talking about investing, I thought, I have some money sitting around in a savings account. I'd been squirreling away a few hundred dollars at a time since I started working as a teenager. It wasn't even earning interest at the time, so I started thinking that maybe I should be investing as well. Perhaps that would be more prudent. I thought there was a chance that the amounts Joe and I were talking about would be too small for Melissa to bother with, but she was happy to do this favour for her kid cousin. When the first statements came back, our money had made money, a decent amount. I said to Joe that we'd best not consider it real money because Melissa must be doing some very risky things to get us those kinds of returns. It was best if we accepted that it could disappear at any time. As it turns out, that was the most helpful strategy to prepare us for what was to come. We'd seen Melissa just a few weeks before she disappeared. The news came out slowly. First, Joe and I were extremely worried that something awful had happened to his cousin. We posted the missing headlines to social media. Bit by bit, we heard that there had been a police raid on her property the night before she vanished. That something hadn't been quite right with her business affairs. She hadn't followed a process with her financial license. It didn't cross my mind yet that our money was gone. Investigative journalist Kate McClymont was on the case, 
and the day she published an article explaining the level of forgery involved in Melissa's schemes was the day Joe and I looked up our ComSec statements and realised that our accounts didn't actually exist. Not only were our impressive gains gone, but so were the original sums we'd believed she'd invested on our behalf. Trust is something that can get us far in life. We trust people every day to do their jobs well and ethically, whether they're serving us food or giving us medical advice. Trust in others builds strong networks, which can support us when the chips are down. My resilience in the face of being defrauded of most of my hard-earned money is largely thanks to a strong network of amazing family and friends, whom I still trust implicitly. Even now, though I maintain my trust, I find myself wondering whether my radar for discerning deception is faulty. Could I be taken in again one day? I'd been studying cults and manipulative leaders for a couple of years by the time I deposited my savings into Melissa's account. The possibility of her being a con artist never crossed my mind. Joe had known Melissa since he was born, and she knew our financial positions better than most. On top of that, she was already incredibly wealthy, that was clear. Why would she want our money? Even after the media stories about her business dealings started coming out, and even after Melissa went missing, I still thought that the things being said about her were impossible. Joe and I were totally focused on her well-being. We were so concerned that she'd been abducted and come to harm. It took weeks to tease out the truth of the situation, and once we did, it was tough to come to terms with. After Melissa had been missing for more than two months, a severed foot, later confirmed as hers, was found washed up on a beach on the south coast of New South Wales. In a bizarre coincidence, I'd previously listened to a podcast about feet washing up on beaches. And while conspiracy theories abounded about Melissa cutting off her foot to fake her own death, I thought the explanation offered by Stuff You Should Know seemed more plausible. If a person drowns while wearing buoyant sneakers, the confluence of water currents and the biology of ankle joints can result in this phenomenon of a foot detaching from a body. I believe the likeliest story is that she couldn't live with the results of her actions. This distressing, almost unfathomable experience in my own life has given me insight into what it's like to be conned. If you've never been through anything like it, believe me, it doesn't go down the way you think it would. The person using you for their own selfish gains may also be someone you'd never consider capable of doing such things. If, in addition, you look at that person as a guru and truly believe they have aligned to God, or that they are dedicated to guiding you to a better future, there's even less chance you'll think them capable of manipulation and deceit. Many former cult members have told me that even after leaving, it took them a long time to realise what was really going on in their organisation. Some still viewed their former leader as generally well-meaning and perhaps corrupted or led astray at some point. It's only over time that they come to understand the extent of the manipulation they've experienced. Some have said that reading books by other cult survivors like Dr. Yanya Lalich, Dr. Alexandra Stein or Dr. Stephen Hassan has helped them re-examine their experiences and understand the bigger picture. But when you trust someone and you're in it, it doesn't occur to you to ask the types of questions that would expose the fraud that they're working so hard to hide. 
It certainly never occurred to me to ask them of Melissa. Following her experience in the New Zealand-based group Cosmic Fusion, German-born IA, who asked me to use her initials rather than her name, told me, I did not join a cult. I joined a group that was about energy healing, about self-improvement, and it became a cult. You know, nobody joins a cult. You're out of your mind to do that. And mostly it happens to really intelligent people and people who question life, who want to go deeper, who are looking for more than just paying the bills and watching TV. It's a natural human instinct to seek purpose in life. For me, personally, it's harder to understand the appeal of the more religious groups, though I can see the value of the great amounts of charity and volunteer work undertaken by those who are motivated by their scriptures. Rather, the cults that I can see myself being seduced into are ones such as the ideal human environment, Zendik Farm, or Fire This Time. In the world of cults, the range of utopian visions is vast. James Salerno's Ideal Human Environment, IHE, began as a leadership experiment for the intrepid. Major Australian newspapers ran stories around his recruitment drive just before the turn of the century. One of the articles read, Wanted, three Canberra families to brave six months in the outback to advance the frontiers of social science. I remember reading these call-outs around the time I was finishing high school. It sounded like a real adventure. Cut to 2019, and James Salerno is on trial for child sexual abuse. A former IHE member testified in court that followers who demonstrated that they believed Salerno to be God and adhered to his orders most closely would be more likely to progress up the ranks of the leadership structure. In her memoir about her time at Zendik Farm, Mating in Captivity, Helen Zuman writes, No one knowingly joins a cult and no one in a cult would call it that. We join, we commit to communes, new religions, personal growth programs, temples, revolutions. Saying, I joined a cult, comes later, if ever. It means releasing stories we doubt we can live without. Stories that give us purpose. Stories we can't see as stories, so long as they absorb us. Helen was a Harvard graduate, who was interested in sustainability, organic farming, and a way of life that rejected the ravages of capitalism. Zendik Farm was full of attractive young people who were intent on saving the world from ecocide. They shared a sense of disillusionment with society, and a feeling that capitalism was not healthy for humans. Members were ready to take a risk, and, as Helen puts it, to leap into the unknown for the sake of something beautiful that might happen. Helen was open to the idea of non-monogamy and alternative lifestyles, and she really wanted to learn some practical skills. Five years of farm work and magazine selling later, Helen came out with $10 to her name and a ride to the nearest highway. Shannon Bundock had a passion for social justice. When she moved to a poor neighbourhood in Vancouver, Canada, as a university student, She wanted to do something about the inequality she saw all around her. Her activism with the Anti-Poverty Committee helped set up the first safe injecting site in North America. It also connected her to a man named Ali Yerovani. 
Yerevani claimed that there needed to be more structure and organisation for the activists to have a greater impact, which made sense to Shannon, who saw dominant power systems replicated in the anarchistic setup of the Anti-Poverty Committee. Her devotion to overcoming her own privilege led her to give up her entire sense of self and hand over all of her decision-making to Yerevani in the group that she helped found called FIRE this time. Those are examples that I can imagine sparking my own interest. But I've spoken to so many people whose path into their cult seems like it could have happened to any one of us. Some people joined groups looking to change the world, striving for personal improvement, or seeking a community. Perhaps you can see yourself more easily in one of the following stories. Carly McConkie had just finished university and hadn't pinned down what she was going to pursue as her career. She'd studied communications in Bathurst and moved back in with her parents after graduating. She'd put on some weight and was in a bit of a rut. When she went to a mind-body-spirit festival in Sydney, she came across a stand for life integration programs. The brochure for the Next Evolutionary Step course promised to help her find her direction and reach her potential. She attended that first course with her mother and sister in a hired space at Macquarie University and lost the next 13 years of her life to the group. Russell Johnson got involved with his Heidemann group through the innocuous act of attending a local neighbourhood martial arts course. Russ ended up in hospital almost losing his arms and his Chung Mukwon leader, John C. Kim, did jail time for conspiracy to defraud the United States of America. Sasha Nelson became entangled in the female orgasm-focused group The Welcomed Consensus in San Francisco after meeting a man named Bill on a Tinder date. Sasha found herself listening to the Escaping Nexium podcast one day and coming to the realisation that she'd been in a cult. Carly McConkie pointed out a few red flags to me when I asked her about warning signs that you might be in a cult. I definitely believe that if you want to reach enlightenment or meaning in your life, you talk to a lot of people, you read a lot of books, you take the golden thread from a lot of people and situations. You don't rely on one person. So if people are focusing on one person or one organisation, then that's a warning sign. Carly also said, If a person has ailments or ill health, and that leader is telling them not to go to a general practitioner or a medical doctor, but they can heal them or just do their particular form of healing or that type of thing, or not go to a psychologist or psychiatrist, they're warning bells. There are some overlaps here with the anti-vaccination movement and its encouragement of adherence to disregard the advice of medical professionals. Dress can be another red flag. Sasha Nelson said, If people, especially women, if they're all dressed the same, if they have kind of a similar fashion, if they're all wearing short skirts and high heels, or if they just all kind of look like they have this uniform, I would be wary. It's common for friendship circles to end up influencing each other's tastes. But if you get the sense that you're in the bad books for expressing your own style, consider whether a healthy group would require such conformity. At the drug rehabilitation cult of Synanon, Members all had shaved heads. Initially a punishment for relapsing into drug or alcohol usage, this later became penance for any error, and by the mid-1970s it was a requirement of all incoming residents. 
Former member Marianne Wattle said, We did it to get into our guts that we are independent and free, and that it's no more humiliating for a woman to be bald than a man. When George Lucas was shooting his directorial debut, THX 1138, in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1971, he needed lots of extras with shaved heads. The dystopian sci-fi is set in a future where people's emotions are suppressed by drugs and society is under the control of an android police force. In the film, citizens all have shaved heads, and many of the extras featured in the movie were recruited from Synanon. The film didn't achieve box office success at the time, but many now describe it as a cult classic. There are certainly many harmless new religious movements, and their beliefs and ways of life should absolutely be protected by the right to freedom of religion. But before declaring a group is harmless, it doesn't hurt to make time to speak with a variety of former members, as well as those currently in the group. If a group is healthy, someone looking into it shouldn't find many issues raised by those who were once a part of it. However, if the overwhelming majority of leavers are concerned for the well-being of those who remain, those concerns should be taken seriously. Similarly, in a relationship context, if the majority of someone's ex-partners feel traumatised by their time with that person and warn others to steer clear, that person might want to take a good hard look at him or herself. Unfortunately, because many who leave cults are accused of having an agenda or vendetta against the organisation, their stories and experiences are dismissed or not investigated as fully as they should be. Most ex-cult members I speak to aren't out for revenge. Most tend to want their former groups to be accountable and to stop causing harm. I'm sure a few would like to see some form of justice doled out or to be compensated for their lost money and years, but most that I've spoken to would settle for positive change. Media, an unwitting ally. Sometimes, instead of offering sensationalist coverage, the media can play a part in helping cults recruit more members. Cult leaders can be very good at making sure visiting journalists' experiences are selectively conducted, and if reporters haven't spoken to former members for their stories, they may not have a comprehensive perspective. In early 1971, a favourable television segment on the alternate lifestyle of the Children of God, the cult now known as the Family International, was shown on NBC. After the program aired, newcomers poured in from all over the country, and by September 1971, the cult had grown from 150 to 2,000 full-time followers. An investigation by the New York Attorney General into the group released a report in 1974 that alleged crimes ranging from kidnapping and slave labour to incest and rape. Founder David Berg left the US in April 1972 and would never return to face any charges. Today, the Children of God are best known for their practice of bringing in members through flirty fishing or sending female followers out to bring in men as hookers for Jesus, Berg's words. Problematic beliefs around sex permitted the rampant child abuse within the cult, and uncritical journalism may have led some into this environment. When Luke Walker and Melissa McLean first started researching their documentary Beyond Our Ken, 
about the Australian organisation Kenja Communications. They weren't sure whether they had enough material for a feature film. Walker attended Kenja sessions for six months prior to commencing filming on the documentary and said that the main thing he felt was exhaustion at feigning enthusiasm rather than that there was anything sinister going on. On the surface, the group seemed to be a fairly harmless self-help scheme. McLean said she didn't have a sense of the group being anything other than innocuous until she started talking to ex-attendees. Multiple child sexual abuse allegations against founder Ken Dyer surfaced during the documentary production process. Walker and McLean's experience is not unique among journalists, and that's because when these groups do let an outsider in, their experience may be very carefully managed. Journalist Andrew Burrell won an award for his 2015 Weekend Australian magazine article, The Utopia Project, about the ideal human environment. The judges said he broke new ground in pulling back the curtain on an untold, unusual, but very human story right in our backyard. But just over four years later, Burrell revisited the story after realising that Salerno and his people had whitewashed most of what he witnessed while staying with them. Little more than two months after that, he was reporting on James Salerno's arrest. When Salerno was sentenced to 10 years in prison for child sexual abuse in 2019, the victim said, The girls can sleep easy now, the ones that are still left in there. That's all I wanted from the start, to help the other girls. In 2016 and 2018, New Zealand's national broadcaster TVNZ showed a series of documentaries about Gloria Vale Christian Community called Gloria Vale A World Apart and Gloria Vale The Return. I watched these documentaries and they show happy people content with their considerate egalitarian society in which nobody receives anything that other community members don't also have access to. Filmmaker Amanda Evans said, Most of the time, when Gloria Vale gets a spot in the media, it's usually that the journalist has decided beforehand what angle they're going to take. It's not our job to put our own opinions on this film. It's them telling their own story. They see this documentary as being a way of explaining their lifestyle to the rest of New Zealand and showing New Zealand the model for a pious life. But allowing Gloria Vale to manage the message didn't paint the full picture, at least not according to Liz Gregory, who runs the Gloria Vale Leavers Support Trust. Gregory, who watched both documentaries in a room full of ex-Gloria Vale residents, said it made for an entertaining time. She recalls one former member pointing at the screen and saying, that's a lie. Gregory told me that Gloria Vale wants to present itself as a glossy, utopian Christian community where there's unity and harmony and everyone is happy. And of course, if it were really the case, that would be great. She says, we wouldn't criticise it. But when all you see coming out of there is heartbreak, carnage and trauma, you've got to wonder, was there anything true in the documentaries? Gregory also saw how this positive media coverage worked as a recruitment tool. She said, I know people that went and joined Gloria Vale after watching those glossy documentaries, and they stayed for a period of time. Some can't stay longer than two, three weeks, because if you've lived on the outside and you try to join Gloria Vale, you can see its faults. It's domination, it's control, it's manipulation. Not all toxic situations are all bad. 
The thing about cults, like any toxic situation, is that most of them do have at least a couple of appealing qualities. The people I interview may share harrowing stories, but they also don't shy away from telling me about the good parts of the cult they were in. The people they loved, the sense of community they shared, some of the insights they gained. Ruin Me Pagala may have left one taste, but he says, I actually still think it's one of the best things I've done in terms of my own personal transformation and my connection to my own sense of purpose. Getting the full picture is the best way to find out the truth of a story, at least in theory. When I interview people for my podcast, I'm wary of being accused of presenting only one side of the story. Where contact information is available, I've written to cult leaders, if they're still around, to try to get their perspective. Unfortunately, this approach never gets me anywhere. Perhaps because cult leaders are wary of any message they can't manage and control. I pour over as much available material as I can to learn as much as possible about their views. That way, I can represent their position to some degree. Occasionally, I believe I've read more of a leader's literature than their former follower. But over the years, it's become clear to me that my podcast's primary purpose is sharing the stories of those who have been impacted by their cult experience. Many leavers struggle to find an outlet that will do this. Sometimes there's a fear of lawsuits. Sometimes the media format makes telling a story in enough depth difficult, where there's a limitation on reflecting the complexity of the experience. The long-form nature of a podcast episode can allow the space to do so. If I start researching a group and find that very few former members have any issues with the organisation, I'm unlikely to pursue further research. When I watched those Gloria Vell documentaries, I almost abandoned my investigation into the group. But after reading a little further, it became clear that there was another side to the story and problematic aspects of the organisation. As Liz Gregory told me, I like to remind people that when people leave Gloria Vale, it's not like 30% of people that come out and say it's bad and the other 70 say, no, what are you talking about? It's great. It's literally 99 or 100% of people over time who come out and go, yeah, it's actually as bad as all that. It's shocking. Leaders will often say that people are making the choice to remain in these groups. But as cult expert, academic and former cult member Dr. Yanya Lalich puts it, those people are likely making what she terms a bounded choice. That is, life outside the cult has become impossible to imagine. No matter how beautifully life within the cult may be portrayed to the outside world, living without freedom is an ugly reality, and unlikely to be a reality that a rational person would choose if they had all of the information going in. This was an extract read from my new book, Do As I Say, published by Pan Macmillan Australia, out on the 28th of June. The order link is in the show notes. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.